Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Well, amen. Praise the Lord. I, you know, I know that Steve uh, was still there in the outer court, holding court. And I'm fine, Steve. You can go ahead and go back out there. And, and I know it. I, I know. I'm because, I mean, this is, this is like the most holy place. There's nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. So, you know, usually they turn the lights out in the outer court to let people know it's time for the next session. I saw the lights go out for a second, and then somebody said, well, hey, hold it. We're talking to Steve. Turn the lights back on. And uh, so, uh, you know, praise the Lord. At, you know, pick his, uh, pick his brain and, and uh, you know, get some help on the hard questions and the things. It's an amazing um, pattern that we're seeing related to worship and the functionality and how it works together. And, you know, Steve had kind of um, yeah, mentioned at the end of the last session about the Apostle Paul. So let me, let me start let me start there, maybe, um, but also uh, ask if you would to get uh, uh, Jeremiah 7 in your left hand, Psalm 138 in your right hand. So Psalm 138, Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 7, Psalm 138, and this is on the way to uh, something we're going to see in the New Testament. But before we get to what we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke, let's consider just for a second the life of Paul. His conversion is about, I'm going to say about A.D. 36. Um, He does not go on his first missionary world tour until A.D. 45. So what goes on during those 10 years? And in terms of um, the seven stages of discipleship that we can isolate from the life of Christ, it, this was, I will say, that was at 10 years. Some of what goes on in that 10 years was his time of separation and reevaluation, which originated, in my opinion, on Mount Sinai through worship. And just like you can trace the seven stages of discipleship and the four goals of discipleship through the life of Paul, worship came first. And so what started in Damascus when he first got saved gets developed in Arabia because he went to Mount Sinai for 40 days to worship. So if you're here and you're not asleep, I know just what you're saying. You're asking, now, Alan, which comes first? Uh, uh, okay, well, I, uh, I ordered a chicken and an egg from Amazon the other day. I'll let you know. But which comes first, worship or the Word? And, you know, I think that may just be an academic red herring because here in Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I will worship toward thy holy temple, and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. So it's obvious from 
David's psalm that the two are intertwined, so much so that we find Jeremiah. Here in Jeremiah chapter 7, we, saw, we find Jeremiah taking that same tack. Uh, verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there the word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So you will get the word when you come to worship. Chapter 26, Jeremiah 26, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. So as they come, you speak all the words that I command thee to speak unto them, diminish not a word as they come to worship. Chapter 15, if you go back a few, Jeremiah 15, verse 16, thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So to Jeremiah and to David, the word and the words are the joy and rejoicing of his heart because that is how you come to worship. I want you to notice it doesn't say here that it is the joy and rejoicing of his mind. And that is what we would expect words to do. But they're not an object of research. They are one of rejoicing because of their worship value, because they're God's words. And that is why worship is at the heart of everything we do, everything we are as Christians. Now, comparisons are always dangerous. There was this one guy who was a terrible person. He was a drunk. He gambled away the uh, family's rent money. I mean, I, you know, it used to be back in the day. I, this was probably the late 1900s. They built uh, casino boats on the Missouri River, and you could go to the casinos to gamble. And I don't know why, but at least in the state of Missouri, uh, the, while the boats did not go any place. The boats had to float, otherwise the gambling was not legal. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, but now, not, not in Missouri yet, but in Kansas, well, you can get on an app, and you can, you can gamble while the game's going on. I mean, not, eat, not bets, not, bets on anything, you know, related to, the, to sports and st- sports betting. Okay, well, he would, he would gamble away the family's rent money. He was an adulterer. He was a profane speaker. Uh, he had a brother. His brother was just nearly as bad as him. But when the first man died, his brother came to the preacher and said, look, I'd like you to do the funeral. The preacher said, well, I'd be happy to. Uh, The other brother said, well, now there's just one thing. Somewhere in the funeral, I want you to call my brother a saint. Preacher said, you know, I don't don't think I can do that. And he said, now listen, um, if you'll do that, I have $500,000 I will put into your building program. Well, that'd solve a lot of things. So preacher said, okay, I'll pray about it. The day of the funeral came, there was... 
that man down in the casket, and the preacher looked down at the casket. He said, I want you to know that the man in this casket was a drunkard. He was a gambler. He was an adulterer. He was a profane man, as you all know. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) So comparisons are dangerous, but... My whole worship study today is based on a comparison of two people, but well, since you're not yet feeling me like I need you to, can I, can I begin with an, experience, an exegesis of your experience before we move into our exegesis of the English Bible? Because there's several popular misconceptions about worship, and they exist in your world as well as in the world in general. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. First off, notice, if you will, how most of us... And maybe because of the customs or the culture in which we were raised, this is letter A, we primarily associate worship with a facility. Therefore, we worship when we go to that place. And if we're not in that, we have a very Old Testament idea. And so if we're not in that spot, then we're not worshiping because worship takes place in there. Um, but that's kind of a pagan idea, you know, and, and even if that place has the name church on the side, it's still pagan ideas. So second, on the other hand, letter B, others associate worship with a feeling. And when my emotions rise because the music, the singing, the preaching, uh, tears well up in my eyes, chills run down my spine, when I am emotionally impressed, then I must have worshiped. You know, when I was a college pastor and we were working with international students, this was, you know, this is ancient history. This was the late 1900s. I used to tell those students at their orientation at the university, look, you know, uh, let let me inform you, there are three kinds of Christianity in America, and I know you came to the United States, you think we are the premier Christian nation on the planet, but you will see liturgical, Pentecostal, and evangelical Christianity. So one church you go to may be liturgical, and that's where they will have an altar in the center. And that altar is in the center because they believe God mediates His grace through ceremonies, sacraments, and rituals done by a priest. Now, another type of church you may go to, don't be scared, it's, it, it's just Pentecostal, and they believe that God mediates His grace to you through an experience. They will try and get you to speak in tongues, or one leg, one of your legs to grow longer than the other, or whatever. Uh, I said, but my church has a pulpit in the center, and the entire service centers around preaching of the Bible because in evangelical churches, in other words, churches that preach a pure gospel, well, we, we recognize God mediates His grace to you through your faith in His Word. But at some churches, worship's strictly an emotional response, and if I have that response, then whatever else I did, I worshiped. But now let me step into Baptisthood. I'm a Baptist, so I know Baptists, and, and uh, you know, most IFBs, in Independent Fundamental Baptists, are just banned because there's some things that we unconsciously assess as worship that are mis- misperceived worship. Poor Ahemplo, and this is letter C. Now, that was Spanish. So if you're sitting there saying... Who's a Hemplo? Oh, poor a Hemplo. 
No, that means, that means, for example, worship is associated with how I'm dressed. And if the preacher comes out in a suit and tie, uh, or if the, the choir is robed to sing, or if I put on my Sunday, Sunday best, then whatever else I did, I worshiped. I worshiped. I think we've also mystified worship as style sometimes. And so we get, you know, into arguments over hymns versus contemporary and guitars, well, acoustic or electric, electric or, or neither one, and uh, drums or no drums, and piano or electronic keyboard or hymnals or PowerPoint. And in all of those ways, we misconstrue personal worship by confusing it with personal preference. And, you know, so for some people who grew up a certain way, if there's no candles and liturgy, it's not worship. If we're in a gym instead of a sanctuary, it's not worship. If we do not pass a plate and take up an offering, it's not worship. Well, wait a minute. I may need to think about that one a second, but... Uh, you know, if we don't have to dress up and talk down, it's not worship. If we don't have to speak in hushed tones and kneel in a pew or genuflect at an altar, then we've not worshiped. So how deep does worship really go? Well, look here in Deuteronomy 6. Here's how deep it goes. Verse 3, hear therefore, O Israel. So these are words you're getting. And observe to do it. Do these words, because this is worship, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. So in order to receive the promises of God, you got to obey the commands of God. Um, now, I will say that is true of the unconditional promises uh, 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 you know, for, for, for all of us, uh, but much more for Old Testament saints in a faith that works type of scenario. Um, uh, you know, I got, uh, have, a, have a car, and it came with a Sirius XM trial. And the only thing uh, I like to listen to on Sirius XM is, I think it's channel 460, it's the Billy Graham channel. Billy Graham channel is the only good thing they got. Now, they have 15 channels that are just like Howard Stern and all the Howard Sterns of the world. They have exactly one, Billy Graham channel. And, uh, you know, I got saved uh, as, uh, as 11 years of age listening to Billy Graham television crusade. And so, so I'm listening to Billy Graham preach, and uh, he's, he's doing a sermon on the rich young ruler, and bless his heart, he's, he's saying that the rich young ruler made a mistake in thinking that he had to do in order to get to heaven. Well, he did have to do. Uh, it's, no, it's no problem saying that we do not have to do, but yes, he did have to do. So here's what God tells Israel, and yet what he's telling us. Watch, verse 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy, strength, thy might. And after you've done all that, you have nothing left over. And, you know, promoters talk about uh, if you're performing musically, you've got to leave it all out on the stage. And athletes talk about leaving it all out on the field. And here's how much God wants the consecration of your life toward him because this is the four things worship really involves. 
I mean, worship always involves a blood sacrifice, so it can connect you to God in these four dimensions. I, I will say you might call this the biblical philosophy of worship or the four goals of worship. First, number one, love. Seek God's glory, welfare, and highest good. You do that by your obedience to what God says, and it shows up at the giving of the law. Love me and keep my commandments, Exodus 20, verse 6. That is repeated throughout the Old Testament, Then Jesus says it succinctly and repeatedly in John 14, 15, in John 15, verses 21 and 23 to 24, in John 15, verse 10. So the second element that worship involves, this number two, is all your heart. That is your spirit. That is your inner man. Third, all your soul. And this is defined as your mind and understanding in Mark 12, verses 30 and 33, your will and personality. And finally, all of that acting from, number four, all your strength, physical and actual actions and energy, Luke 10, verse 27. So God wants your total love presented in that context because then that constitutes worship. And that is what makes you the living sacrifice since the blood of Jesus was shed on your behalf and as your substitute. So before we start looking at our comparative characters, uh, let me give you their spiritual backstory so that you'll understand their story. And uh, in essence, that is my thesis for, for today's study, which is that before you can represent Jesus Christ or imitate Jesus Christ, you've got to worship God by learning from his words. In short, you worship God in spirit and truth by his word. And a person's heart, that is why a person's heart attitude is going to determine what they find out. And if you do not have a faith-based view of the Bible, if you imbibe of what popular evangelicaldom teaches you, that you need to have a skeptical view of your Bible, a skeptical view of the text. Oh, they will, I mean, they're, they're good evangelicals. They will affirm the stories and they'll deny the words. So truth can only be gained where a heart attitude toward God's truth reflects worship of God. And that worship of God is based on the blood of Jesus, but it requires your living sacrifice. So there's a moral spiritual element in connection with worship and with the apprehension of God's absolute truth. Therefore, in the efficiency of divinity, God desires to express this starting on the smallest unit possible, meaning the smallest unit humanly possible. Uh, in other words, he wants to work first in your individual life and in your heart. Therefore, and this is worship word number one, if you refuse to let God work in you on a personal level with your Bible, then you prevent him from working any place else in your life. Now automatically, you can see why evangelicalism and Baptisthood are in a lukewarm swamp 
in a Laodicean, fall away and turn back state. Because we are talking about a personal exegesis of the words of the English Bible that God gave you. And you cannot do English Bible exegesis with any other translation. I mean, outside of the King James, none of the others are designed in any way for that. I mean, isn't that sad? I mean, don't you want to see God at work on your job? Well, he's got to be at work in your heart by worshiping the Word. Do you want to see God at work in your home? He needs to be at work in your heart by worshiping the Word. Do you want to see God work in your life? He's got to be at work in your heart by worshiping the Word. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the tragedy is not that the cities were not spared. The greatest tragedy is the fact that the saint lost his impact, lost his influence, even lost his family. I mean, no wonder that there were not even 10 converts in Sodom. Because Lot, although he was just and he was vexed, 2 Peter 2, 7, he still had nothing going on with God in his personal life of worship. He never went into the most holy place. He never sat, he never went in there. Say, I mean, he never made that progression back and forth. He sat in the gate of Sodom. And because they had no worship on the personal level, he did not even win his own family. So when we ask the question, What's going wrong with our cities? What's going wrong in our country? What in the world is happening in our society? You know, the problem is not that sinners sin. Sinners always sin. The bad part is that the saints have nothing going on with God anymore. So they cannot save sinners and rescue society. Worship has to start on the personal level, so the challenge has to be PBS, private Bible study, based on EBE, English Bible exegesis, with, with PPT, personal prayer time, and GPPO, getting your personal praise on. So let's start in the, in the right spot with my sidewalk definition, because it's not a textbook definition. You know, it's not something I, uh, you know, pulled out of some scholar, scholars, scholarly scholarship. Uh, this is definition I'm just saying. I just worked out on the street corner. Personal worship is the way God makes himself central to the life of the church, whereby every member of that body gets a divine frame of reference for their life from their individual response to God's word. If you understand the inseparable connection between God and the words of God, and therefore between worship and the Word of God, and work and the Word of God, then it will be in the context of that worship that the children who live in your house get their correct divine worldview. And that explains a whole lot right there as to the state of churches today and their families. The gang problem is not, first of all, an issue of delinquent kids or immigrants or drug running. 
it is first of all an issue of delinquent parents. Hello, somebody. It's what we have set ourselves up for in our society ever since the late 1900s. And therefore, the kids choose a new family structure, uh, you know, which gives them a demonic frame of reference instead of a divine one because they've not seen God being central in any adult's life. The best a lost man can do on a good day is to hire more police. You know, I, 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 I read, I read wi- widely, I, I read both sides, I read everything, I, you know, I read, if I read politics at all, I read, you know, this one and I read that one, and, you know, uh, most recently, uh, uh, William Barr, who had been Attorney General, came out with his um, uh, memoir, I, you know, I, I won't say the title, because uh, then all the ladies, uh, you know, Marissa and other ladies would be embarrassed. Um, you know, because uh, he cussed right even in the in the title. So so okay, uh, he you know he and and you know and he comes up. I'm reading through that, and he's got he he's got very good stuff. He was attorney general twice, um, and so he under he understands how to do it. And um, the the policy, the things he would put in place, uh, certainly brought down a crime for uh, that period of time. Uh, but that's the best that a lost man can do on a good day. That does attack the symptoms. That does not address the disease. And my point is, the disease is that personal worship ad- uh, addresses so many things in that disease. I mean, among others, personal worship addresses loss of value, loss of belonging, and loss of fathering. And this is such a powerful principle for social change. This is worship word number two. Personal worship puts the creature in proper relationship to the creator so that when God is adored, the value of his child is restored. In society, we pay such a high price if we do not restore personal worship, and we reap what we sow, and that is the consequences we are in. Why? Because personal worship is what empowers personal values. I mean, nobody operates in a vacuum without outside influence and direction, and the model which they see and the direction which they get, it may be right or wrong, but, but it is real to them. And what they behold is what they become. So we need to restore worship as the queen of all virtues. The church is supposed to do that. Biblical discipleship does that. We are to be operating in biblical values and transferring that system of truth to everyone who attends here, everyone who hears the word of God from us, everybody we disciple. But it is increasingly problematic to get God's values into our lives if we have no Bible. And unless we carve out the components of personal devotion, which I'm going to suggest are having a biblical altar, your offering and your sacrifice. Your altar, your offering, your sacrifice. Okay, well, what operates in those three courts? Well, then, you know, a necessary component of worship, because for us, things are not visible. It's not an Old Testament scenario. Then one necessary component on a personal level is prayer. 
There's a second key ingredient of personal worship I'm going to say is praise. Thanksgiving. You know, but today I want us to look at the third component, which I will call truth. It is Bible principles applied in life because that is worship by the Word. That is how. That's, you know, I'll say that's why, what Steve's talking about. He's talking about going from the outside in, but you don't stop there and you don't stay there. That may be the mountaintop, but Jesus says, no, we can't stay here. We got to go back. We got to take what's here and go back out there. The Apostle Paul, you know, he referred to it. Okay, here's Paul. He's the only man who got high before he got stoned. And so he's... He, you know, he may have not known whether he was in the body or not, because I don't know if he knew whether or not um, his soul had totally departed or just the spirit. But okay, he's, he's, ta- he's taken up to third heaven. He's in paradise, but he ain't allowed to stay. And he's not even allowed, uh, you know, what he saw was reserved for the apostle John to talk about in Revelation. So, but when Paul comes back, everything is different. I mean, he is spoiled for this life. In the things that he says, the way that he says things, the word that he gives us. So, so, how do you worship on a personal level? This is worship word number three. You worship by studying God's word through English Bible exegesis so that you can apply God's truth in fulfilling God's task. Now turn to Psalm 122. Truth and task have to go together in order to make God's word really relevant. This is how you make the word relevant and put worship into action. Being relevant helps you understand how people in the Bible face the same things that you and I face today. Okay, that's relevant. But after you have been to the most holy place, you see how relevant it is. Well then, uh, worship is your submission to it and your application of it as you come back out under the sun. This is worship word number four. You may have a lot of weaknesses, but whatever strengths you've got are going to be there because of your personal application of Bible principles as your ultimate act of worship. Not law, not legalism, not rules, not regulations, not policy, but worship. So let me show you by, by way of comparison, which is a, a dangerous thing to do. Psalm 122 is one of the songs of degrees, being kind of a CNN, Fox News account of worship in the millennium. So verse 1 says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Now that, but that's not where your feet stand. Except spiritually, like we talked about yesterday, because the temple described by Ezekiel hadn't been built yet. But, verse 3, Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Oh, wait. I think that is what your King James Bible is right now. It is one book. It is the mind of God for humanity today. It was built by one author And that one author was so much God, and his providence has such good eyesight, 
that he even adjusted his word as it went along according to the free will responses of God's people. So, if Jehu cut it with a penknife, well, then God simply inspired it, plus many like words, and had Baruch the scribe re-inscripturate it for his people. And that makes the Bible compact together so that it will be self-defining and self-interpreting by simple English Bible exegesis. Verse 4, whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. We don't give thanks at the testimony of Israel because that was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a testimony belonging to Israel because God gave them three things in, in, in that ark, it had the tables of the word of, of the Ten Commandments that were stored with it. It had a sample of manna from the wilderness to show you how to relate to those words as your necessary food. And it had Aaron's rod that budded as a testimony to the fruit that that will produce. When you eat that word, you're nourished on that word, it will produce that fruit. But it was also the testimony of Israel because they were to use their testimony through that word and doing those things, which really is kind of biblical discipleship. They were to use that to testify to the whole world about the one true God of creation. Verse 5, For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And as the elderly nun said, all, all the 12 apostles were constipated because they had to sit on a throne for a thousand years. <laughs> Except these are thrones of judgment because they will be judging the 12 tribes coming up to worship. Well, all of that to say, you have no temple, no gates, no city, no testimony in that same way, no throne. So, you can pray and you can praise, but your only avenue of literal worship is still your Jerusalem compact together. It is you taking truth to task, spirit and truth, meaning your personal application of Bible principles. And spiritual maturity doesn't just happen, just like your kids do not raise themselves. So the reality, and this is worship word number five, is that what you do personally in your worship relationship affects materially what you become in life. And what we teach of truth from our testimony, not Israel's, our testimony, which is the completed, compact, verbal mind of God in the Bible, that will have a lot to say about what influence we have on others who trust Jesus and on the rewards we get at the judgment seat of Christ for our fruit. Because if you don't start with gold, there won't be no silver stones. So we must teach truth, both by information, that's precept, and by function, that is practice, and it has to be done as a part of your literal act of worship. So what you tell somebody is true in principle. Whether your disciple, your child, or somebody else you're trying to influence, it needs to be true in your practice as a living sacrifice to those words. They need to see you worship. 
So uh, what I think we have to do is stop making ourselves so academic. So let's just take Scripture back from the scholars. Let's make it a living book again. (laughs) It's alive. It was alive until they got to it. And it will not live for us if we do not worship. So in a day of distraction, how do we keep focused on worship? If you are convinced about the necessity of personal worship to rescue you from the failure of a lukewarm life, then what is the most important element that we need to draw out of you, which God wants to receive from you, so that what comes out of you is what is really in you and not just a front for the people watching you? Well, to answer all these questions, I want us to turn to a familiar story of two women in love with the same man. Go to Luke chapter 10. Two women dare to devote their lives to a higher cause in the will of God, and yet their approach to fulfilling that cause is so dissimilar. We're all in love with uh, the same man in, in some senses at times. There may even be a jealousy or a holy rivalry in the way that we approach what we do for Jesus. And Mary and Martha are often contrasted as if you have to make a choice. This is worship word number six. It's clear that Jesus wants each of us to imitate Mary in our worship and Martha in our work. And I would go further and suggest that if your worship is not anchored at the feet of God's Word, then it is defective. And if your study of the Bible does not result in worship in your life, your life will malfunction. So when Jesus wants to teach us about the most intimate aspect of the function of our worship, in other words, the balance of our personal walk in the Word and our worship of God, he chooses two women. He does not take the relationship between James and John. Uh, He does not take the relationship between Peter and Paul. He takes two women who are loved by the same master, John eleven five, Two individuals who are women, who are sisters, and yet who are in competition in some respects for the Lord's attention. Two women who work for him, but as they work, they are still conscious of his gaze and desirous of his approval. How do you, how do you maintain a balance uh, you know, between the letter and the spirit? between head knowledge and heart affection, between the facade and the reality, uh, or what is put on for show versus what will really go. God did not choose Matthew and Thomas to teach us this. He chooses two women. So let's join Jesus in Luke chapter 10, moving with the men that he's called apostles. In verse 1, he sends out 70 men a-preaching, on the twelfth day of Christmas. In verse 17, they return. And in verse 38, the disciples are welcomed into a certain home for some downtime, for feeding and for fellowship. Verse 38, now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. That certain village is Bethany, in John 11, verse 1. Uh, It's about a mile and a a half east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. 
Um, you know, I don't know when we're going to take another trip to Israel, but next time we, you know, we do an LFBI trip to Israel, when you go with us, you'll see this. It's, you know, it's right there, uh, just like John eleven eighteen says and, and Luke nineteen twenty nine. Martha is the head chef. She has a sister whom she expects to be her sous chef, verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his word. Okay, notice the word also. That's important to this story um, because Martha was hearing at the same moment. I mean, their houses weren't constructed like our houses with insulated walls in between uh, things. Uh, Jesus had no problem projecting his voice uh, in large outside areas. They were, they, were both, they were both hearing the word. They were both getting the word. Uh, so... Uh, but here's the problem. You know, if a crowd like that's going to be accommodated, somebody has to make preparation. I mean, ask anyone here who has been waiting on you. I mean, you really need to thank uh, the ladies and the others. I mean, we saw them this morning bringing, you know, they were carting. I mean, it was, they had the donkey and brought it in on a, you know, brought it in in a wagon. And it was, they had just jugs and jugs of coffee just for you. Polish coffee and other coffee, I mean, I, I look, looked like a Polish word to me, and, and, and it all tastes good. And, and, and you know, the caterer's got to be contacted, and the house has to be swept, and the guests got to be attended to, and, the, and somebody's got to serve the sweet tea. So what I want us to lock on to is verse 40, but Martha was cumbered about much serving. She also heard the word, also, like, like Mary, but... She was cumbered about much serving, and she was encumbered, as we would say. She was preoccupied by her preparations, and so she was distracted. She was overloaded, so much so she started dragging things around. Now, there are a couple of issues at stake as related to our topic, so let's clarify the issues in worship. What is Martha distracted from? Well, the answer is from the truth she could hear while she was in the kitchen and Mary was at Jesus' feet. Mary is in the front row in a worship position, not just in order to listen, but in order to not be distracted. Martha's out in the kitchen, and she's getting the horse duvers. Second, what was Martha encumbered by? Well, the answer is all her preparations, I mean, by the things which surrounded so much serving, because she is acting as a technician. Somebody had to go to the market and buy, the, buy everything fresh, buy the fish fresh. Somebody had to cook it all up at once, and somebody had to run for the water because the only running water uh, was down at the stream, and they live up on the Mount, the Mount of Olives, and those fish don't fry themselves. And the problem is stated thusly. She is carrying around a burden. And the problem is not that she's serving because Jesus does not tell her to stop. The problem is that she did not bring with her out into the outer court what was going on in the most holy place. And she carried that burden because she did not carry worship out with her into her work. And now let me keep it real, okay? This is sometimes, you know, we, we do what is called hard preaching. And like Steve said, um, you know, you, you, you like hard preaching because what it corrects in you, I mean, it's, not, it's hard to hear and it's hard to go through and, it's, and it hurts. 
uh, but you like, you, you're hurt in a good way, and you like that. So this is not hard preaching. This is reality preaching. Sometimes the symptom of your worship not being right is burnout. Sometimes the symptom of your worship not being right is conflict with others in family, in ministry. And sometimes the symptom of your worship not being right is succumbing to temptation. And I I mentioned yesterday the most uh, uh, carnal pastor I've ever known personally knew the Bible better than anybody sitting in here, and that's saying something. So as I did a post, post-mortem on, on, on what had happened, uh, you know, the problem was not that he did not know his Bible. problem was, was, was no prayer, no praise, no worship. So i got to ask this. How good are you at keeping the worship factor up? You've got to be good at that in order to avoid being encumbered with all the things that challenge our fellowship at this moment. I mean, there's only church once or twice a week. I mean, there's only Sunday school once a week. 168 hours in a week, and how, how long does your pastor get you? One? I mean, there's only MTTS or D2 or LFBI once a week. There's only so much time at Jesus' feet. The Holy Spirit is not always speaking to your heart. As he does here, as he is today, and this is worship word number seven, the way to apply truth worshipfully is to learn while you listen and then go out and live what you learned. There is always a value to learning, even if you cannot apply it at that moment. However, this does call into question learning which is not applicable. I think sometimes we're Martha's in the Word, just like we are in the kitchen. And we, we may be in the Word, but we're still not at the feet of Jesus. How do I know? Here's your sign, verse 40. Martha came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Now, you don't even need to answer that. I know you care. And since you care, here's what you're going to do. You're going to tell her to come help me back up in here because you care. So let me just point, point out something that will help all the pastors and the pastoral level leaders among us uh, because it will also help your marriage, your ministry, and your relationships. Contrary to Matthew 18, Martha's no longer speaking to Mary. How many of you see this scenario? As, you know, especially a pastoral, a pastoral level, level leader. Uh, she ignores Mary. She goes to the boss. Why? Because she's mad that Mary is not as cumbered as she is. And who can deny her experience? I mean, the reality is it's hot in the kitchen. She is sweating. Her mascara is running. Beans are boiling over. The fish fry started a grease fire. The bread's about to burn. And then it dawns on her. The reason I am perspiring like a pig is because my sister is sitting on her keister. Well, I think I'm going to go out and kick her in the keister. And she can just kiss me, kiss my keister. She doesn't like it. Oh, I can see her now. She takes that dinner towel. She tosses down on the counter. She turns around. She looks out in the den, and she sees her sister and gives her the evil eyebrows. No, not the evil eye. That's that's kind of a demonic thing, but the evil eyebrows. 
Mary is supposed to be setting the table. That's what she went out of the kitchen to do. And yet she is sitting in the front row, her legs crossed, napkins, forks, and spoons in a pile, taking the place of some man who could have sat right there. Is it not amazing that when we get into predicaments we can't solve, we use that fact as a test of whether or not the Lord cares? Well, Jesus, if you just stop giving me all your hardest problems, and he's like, just, just pick up your clothes and put them in the hamper. Pick up your dirty clothes and put them in the hamper. But if he didn't come through for us at that moment with a what we will say biblical response based on our logic, well, then he must not care. And then we do the same thing with our spouse or with our pastor, with whomever uh, that we think is in control of solving our problem. And uh, that's a great lesson in worship because Jesus is trying to rescue us from the tyranny of selfishness, even Scripture selfishness. I mean, it's almost as if if we could only arrest our thoughts, I mean, if we could only take them captive to Christ instead of bringing him to man's. You know, maybe God doesn't want to work a rescue for you because worship involves suffering as you offer your life as a sacrifice. I mean, maybe he wants your attention while everyone else is distracted with the emergency. See, by my sidewalk definition, uh, you, this is, you show your worship by the combination of truth and works. Wait, you worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24, but truth always takes you to task. So you show worship by your work. In the Old Testament, the work was an altar and a blood sacrifice. In the New Testament, the works are prayer and praise, but that's not very tangible. So if it is sterile truth, if you do not get involved in ministry, then you really don't worship and there will be no fruit. Mary knew that there was a time to act, and the time to act is when Jesus is not in the house bringing the word. I mean, if, if Jesus is in the house, then worship him. If Jesus is out busy, you be busy too. So Martha serves. It's not that she doesn't serve. She serves. Chapter 12, verse 2. John chapter 12, verse 2. But if Jesus is around, Mary is constantly at his feet in worship position. She falls at his feet, John eleven thirty two. 32. She anoints his feet, John 12, 3. And now she is sitting at his feet because she was quicker than any of the 12 who took his teaching for granted. I mean, they'd just been sent out as teachers. Why do they need to be on the front row? And Jesus is always you know, more concerned about ministry than eating a meal, which we know from John chapter 4 with, with, with the woman at the well. Does Jesus care when your life is at the mercy of history, policy, conspiracy, and outside circumstance? 
Does Jesus care when so many people are depending on you? Does Jesus care when everything that hits a fan ends up falling on your shoulders? Let me settle you down. This is worship word number eight. Do not blame God for the distractions and dysfunctions in your life if worship has not been your priority. I'm just saying, be careful what you blame God for. Martha's sweating it out, but Martha's problem is her lack of personal worship. It's not what she's doing or that she's doing too much or that she is, quote, too busy, whatever that is. Martha's problem is her lack of personal worship. Mary's virtue is her devotion to truth and to Jesus' words as an expression of her worship. I would to God I could make you feel that today. I mean, the issue is not, doesn't your discipler care? The issue is not, doesn't your spouse care? The issue is not, doesn't this church care? Or doesn't this fellowship care? Or don't the teachers care? The administrators care? Or Jesus care? The issue is your worship of him, because in worship you start seeing the needed things in your life. And Mary chooses the good part. And the good part is worship under the word, which means, and this is worship word nine, you cannot have balance if you do not have worship. Have you prioritized prayer and praise and worship in the word? Many of the things that you're going through are not God's will. You put it on him. But really, it's related to your own lack of personal relationship with him through his words. Watch, watch, verse 41. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, 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 thou art careful and troubled about many things. Girl, look at all the stuff on your mind. You are carried away with cornbread and the chicken and sweet potatoes and the greens. And I know you want to do something for me, but you know what? You're not spending time with me. I'm right here. Listen, Marf, I will order out for pizza if you'll just sit here with us. See, your problem is your mind, and and not your mind, really. It's, It's what's on it. And it's not even what you've got on it, really. It's how you have let what is on it deflect you from word worship. Here's what you must do. Because only one thing is really necessary, and everything else is totally negotiable. You know what Jesus is telling Martha? Change your menu because God's words are our nourishment. If you want to be nurtured, then add admonishments to your menu. And this is so important, especially with all those who have turned back and fallen away from the word. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. What good is it to have the master inside if you are never listening to the words of the master and you cover that up with all sorts of other activity and social good works and, you know, things that you do as a church or whatever? Not really praying to talk to the master, never praising or sacrificing sweet things to the master, never reading, studying, and applying truth from the master— How can we say as Christians that we want to be close to the Lord, but in our personal walk, there is no place for the right Bible in our worship? I mean, he wants to serve you manna, 
and you are eating chitlins and crawdads. We have Jesus in our life, but why? Why have him in your life if you are not paying close attention, doing a close reading of the text of his words from a worship position? Listen, Marv, clear out the kitchen because one translation dish is enough and Mary has chosen it. We're going to get to 2 Timothy 1, but verse 42 of Luke 10 says, But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Wait, that's what makes it so good. 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, the words that he heard were inspired because Paul spoke them. The form he was receiving them in right now was inscripturated. It was written. It was the scripture that he had from Paul. And wait, you don't even have the form of sound words if you have the Southern Baptist Version, the Christian Standard Bible. What you have in the CSB is the pattern of sound teaching. Now that sounds flowery, but that does not give you the certainty of the words of truth. That doesn't give you the certainty of the actual words. Ditto the ESV, ditto the NIV. No words, just teaching. And you can't do exegesis on that. And the New American Standard Bible and the New King James gives you the sound words, but only either as a pattern or an example. So they're not specially formed. Words, but without form. So you have an example of words or words in a pattern, which, which also defies English language exegesis. Because you have to have a text to exegete. Yeah, I mean, you actually have to have formed words, not just an example. So if you do not hold fast the form of sound words, you lose the cross-references to holding fast the, fast the faithful word, Titus 1.9. So that... So that You are able to hold fast that which is good, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. So you hold fast the profession of our faith, Hebrews 10.23, and be able to hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, Hebrews 3.6. You know what sound words are? They're the words in your Bible. You know what the form of those words are? They are the King James Bible in English. The form Timothy had them was Hebrew and Greek. But you've got to hold fast the form that God gave you in your own language. And the scripture which was given by inspiration was not an original manuscript. I mean, if so, then you tell me how how God lost it. I'll wait. You tell me how the Holy Spirit lost it. So rather, what was given by inspiration was what had been inscripturated and hath in these last days spoken to you as Scripture. So what makes this so good is that once you have a King James Bible, 
then those sound words can never be taken away unless you do not hold fast to the form in which we receive them. And we received them for 270 years as God's only words in English. I mean, that's not my fault. That's what God did. Can you not see God's hand in history? 1611, 1881, it was all we had. Either it's God's words in English or we we never had it. So it cannot be taken away, but you can fall away. Oh, boo. I mean, it was so good, but you turned back from what you knew before and you fell away. Martha's trying to furnish a meal and furnish a table while Mary is getting throughly furnished unto all good works, 2 Timothy 3.17. Mary understands that the purpose for the dinner is to spend time with the Savior and get his words. And so she chooses to get his words and to worship him. The purpose for the dinner is not the dinner or even feeding the guests. Pastor, Is your relationship with the Word of God simply for feeding the guests? Are you Martha in your Bible when you need to be a Mary? Do you ever have that kind of drama with your kinfolk? You know, you you thought you were going to spend time with some family, uh, extended family, and have some fun with them, but no, it turns out they want you to come so you can make everything look perfect or be perfect or taste perfect for them. What Mary decided was to work up to a point, and then at that point, no matter what was left undone, it was Messiah time. She was going to have a drink of a tall, cool one, a drink of living water, and she's going to leave the rest of the tasks undone because dinner is just a tool to get people close to her Lord. Wait, but you say... As I know what you're thinking, you know, right through your head. Look, it was their culture that women should stay in the kitchen. We should not have women in the morning session. You say, but the Bible would even indicate that she should be in the kitchen. Well, I guess sometimes you've got to break the rules to be biblical. Apparently. I mean, where it concerns worship and the Word. Ah, Jesus and the Holy Ghost ain't too gender exclusive here, I'm just saying. And maybe not, not as exclusive in some ways as our independent fundamental Baptist friends are. So the question on the floor today is this. What is distracting you from truth and task, worship by the Word? No matter how good it is, no matter what service it is, no matter what your parents, peers, or professors might think, why are you enveloped and encumbered by that thing, full of care and troubled? Because truth and task can always be balanced by worship. The meal will be gone in a few hours. Tomorrow you're just going to be hungry again. But what Mary is getting here is going to stick with her forever. Because no one can take away from her what she sees in my words. So your job is just part of what you do to lock your day into the Lord and lock it in by personal worship. And your study is just part of what you do to lock your day into the Lord. And your other relationships are just part of what you must do to sit at the feet of Jesus while he is speaking to you. Use all these things as tools to get his word into your life and then know that when you have to leave other things alone, 
they will at least not interfere in your relationship with him, and that really makes you a better person to help them than you would have been otherwise. Now, if it's not practical, it's not preaching. So I ain't preaching if I haven't made it practical, and this is reality preaching. How do you change your priorities to push worship to the front? Let me give you three things, uh, three things I tell my church, which uh, I say will enable them to take it to the limit one more time. Number one, give God the first day of every week with Christ's body. Number two, give God the first dime of every dollar to fund your own ministry. When anything makes you give God the leftovers, then you kill worship. I mean, 10%, so insignificant. But in the Old Testament, it had to be first. It had to come off the top first thing. Otherwise, it was not acceptable worship. And I don't care what you give because, you know, I quit tithing a long time ago. But if you're not doing... Under grace, the minimum under the law, where you yourself are the priest doing ministry, well then that explains to me why dysfunction ravages the rest of your life. Finally, number three, give God the first part every day in his word. How will you use your time, tithe, and talent differently during these last days of the church age? So let me build out number three as, as we close by giving you two more tips to help you structure worship by the word. Two things. First, part of your day, part of your schedule should be program time with God. Psalm 5.3, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. And then the rest of your schedule should be flex time with God. Psalm 35.28, and my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. In everything you do, inject God into your court, into your arena by personal worship, by taking what you learned of the Word and applying it out in your life, by balancing work through worship and choosing to take the best part. So you get unencumbered of all of those other things. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Heads, heads bowed, eyes closed. You know, this had to be the second session, I thought, because it speaks so much to how we have to move and improve and step to the next level in the days ahead, because the days ahead are the very last days. I think it's a good thing to start your day with God, interrupt your day with God, and conclude your day with God. Do that. Everything else goes into place. Even if you think it's not, even if you think it's still random, even if you think it's still one thing after another or maybe everything at once, well, no, God's providence is going to operate on your behalf. Even if dinner consists of bologna sandwiches and popsicles, worship God in spirit and truth by his word. Father, we thank you today as we close Thank you for the time we've had today, uh, Lord, last night and this morning. God, what you're giving us at this conference and what we'll see ahead. Uh, but Lord, help it. Help us to make sure that it impacts our life. It impacts our hearts. It impacts our thinking. We need to worship with truth in spirit. So it needs to change our inner man. We need to have our minds transformed 
by conforming them to the Word and the things we're hearing at this conference. Our personalities need to be different. Otherwise, we've done disservice, discredit, disgrace to your Word. The Word of God will always do the work. If it's, if it's not working, if it's not doing the work in our life, it's not your fault, it is us. So God, bring us to the feet of Jesus in worship so we can give all things to him and glorify him today. We ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.